Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. Our guest on today's show was Christine Jardine, the Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West. We had a great conversation about the current state of the Liberal Democrats, the party's role in the Brexit process in Parliament, including the absence of Vince Cable and Tim Farron from votes in the last round of amendments proposed by the ERG, and all about the plans, or suggested plans, that have been floating around the press for a new centrist party in the UK. A little bit of news before we start. We've just been in London doing a whole load of interviews with people from the Labour Remain campaign, the People's Vote campaign, from Get Britain Out, some journalists from Smog UK, and a whole host of other interviews that we're going to have coming up in the next couple of weeks. So if you don't want to miss any of that, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So here's Christine Jardine. So, Christine, it's it's lovely to chat to you. I'll just jump straight into it. Uh, do you think it was right for Tim Farron and Vince Cable to miss the, the last round of votes on amendments to the Brexit bill? I think that's something we've we've talked um, we've talked about um and completely missed the point. Um <laughs> they've apologized, they made a mistake, but do you know what? It was all about the fact that um people were using it to draw attention away from the fact that so many Labour MPs had either abstained or voted with the government. That was the big thing on the night. Um, the fact that um, we made a mistake which wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome was being used to deflect the fact that the Labour Party had handed victory to the government over Brexit. Um, and that was what the crunch of the whole thing was. That's a very fair point. <laughs> I thought I did think it was quite ironic that Tim Farron was giving a, a talk on the the death of I think was it the death of liberalism during the the votes, <laughs> which I thought was quite uh, quite ironic as as uh, as much as you're right. I don't think like, actually that's what Jim. I don't actually think that's what Jim was talking about. That's it? one way. Uh, no, that's not what he was talking about. But as I say, I, you know that's that's not really relevant. What um, the issue is is that you know you know we said that, but you know it was all a bit of a. a cover for other people for what had actually happened in the house okay so you think it was more of a let's let's talk about this because it seems interesting when it's not really and it's uh, what's yeah. more and interesting we apologize, is which is and we apologize which we get to hear from the labor party that, that's a fair point and i don't actually think that we i don't think we, we've seen the full effect or the full meaning of what mm-hmm. the the amendments will mean whether they're actually going to make it I think they've to they've to go to the Lords now, as far as I'm aware, and then they have to come back potentially. So we, we may not even see them come to fruition as anything that's going to impact what's the way that Brexit is going to play out. So is what? So why did why did you say was it that 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 doesn't make any sense if you think about your first question? Um, you know, you're questioning what Tim Evans did, but now you're saying what well, doesn't what the Labour Party did doesn't actually matter. Um, I'm questioning what they did because uh, I like to see people in, in Parliament as much as possible. But ultimately, I, I think that um, it probably won't have that much of an impact on the Brexit bill as a whole. I think um, the the problem that we have with the, the Brexit bill is that um, there are huge problems with it. I mean, we all know that the, the EU withdrawal bill, to give its correct name, that you, its its purpose 
is to ensure that if we leave the European Union, we can trade the next day, that um, the Eurostar can go to Belgium and France, that flights can take off, that food can go back and forward to the continent, that we can actually get on with, with business. And I think that's, you know, we have to accept that that is the, the purpose of the bill, but within it, um, over the last few months, we've had an awful lot of debates on very important issues where, you know, members of the Labour Party and members of the Conservative Party have bottled it at the last minute and have said, you know, that, you know, they were going to vote against the government, um, they were going to stand up for jobs in this country, which are dependent on the closest possible ties with the EU, and then at the last minute they've bottled it. Um, and to try and deflect that onto us when we're the only party which has been consistent, um, stood up for um, staying within the European Union, have argued and campaigned for that, have backed the people's vote. We're the only party who's done that. So um, to try and then at the last minute somehow pin the problems of a chaotic government and a Labour Party that doesn't know what it stands for and what it believes in, to try and pin them on us is a bit you know, nonsensical, really. Well, I, to, to be honest, I think it's, it's quite interesting that the press managed to, to miss an opportunity to to, <laughs> to lambast Labour. Um, but I, it's, yeah, you, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, you're right, and I think you know that's all about spin. Um, and you know, um, we're an easier target sometimes in Labour because, frankly, we, nobody's really quite sure what Labour stands for anymore, are they? And if you know what we're reading in the last few days is anything to go by, a lot of Labour members are not actually sure what the party they've spent a lifetime in is standing for anymore. Yeah, it's it's an odd position that they're in. But look, yeah. I could talk about it's a Labour. difficult position. Yeah. Um, so you used the word "if" when you were talking about the "if we Brexit" or "if we uh-huh. leave the European Union." Yeah. Um, does that mean that you think that? there will be the people's vote that will get a second chance to go yes or no to a final deal? Well, this won't be a second chance. This will be the first chance (laughs) because we've never seen the deal. We still don't know what the deal is. um, And there's less than six weeks of negotiating time left now. We're running out of time. And we're having people like Liam Fox saying, oh, you know, it's increasingly likely there'll be no deal. that would be catastrophic. Um, so it's not another chance to vote in the deal. It would be our only chance to vote in the deal because we still don't know what it is. Um, and I think there is still time for us to halt Article 50. There is still time for us to look at this and say, hang on a minute, none of us know what's going to happen. I find it very difficult as a politician being invited to events up and down the country. Um, to talk about Brexit and discovering that um, you know you have to stand there and say to business people, to you know people whose jobs depend on it, who you know paying their mortgage will depend on what happens, and you know a few months before we move out, having to say to them, I don't know, the government can't tell us, nobody knows what the deal will be, it's chaos. Now that is not a situation that I think is acceptable for people in this country. I think we should be demanding that we get better from this government and, frankly, from Her Majesty's official opposition who seem to be absent from the whole proceedings in terms of any kind of um, standing up for for the people, for opposing what's happening. They're, just, they're helping the Conservatives deliver Brexit at every turn. And that Brexit is chaotic. And I think that, you know, what we need is... 
as we were running up to this deadline, not knowing what's happening. What we need is some calm heads to say enough. Let's just stop and think about what we're doing. What is this deal and is it the best thing for the country? Yeah, I take your point on on Labour being sort of, I, I, I don't know if I would go as far as to say they were helping the Tories achieve Brexit, but I, I, I definitely agree that there's maybe more they could do. But I feel like they're in a difficult position given that they want to respect the result of the referendum whilst sort of... 70% of their own voters were anti-Brexit. Mm. Now, So why have the Lib Dems that's... not been able to capitalise on it? Well, what do you what do you mean? Why? Well, it's not. A, <laughs> see, if you like, I I feel that kind of that question almost don't take this the wrong way encapsulates what is wrong with the entire debate. Okay, it's not about the Liberal Democrats scoring points. It's about what is best for the country, which is what the Conservatives seem to have lost sight of. They're tied up in an internal civil war about you know no deal or deal or you know we can all see that they're making a complete mess of Brexit. It's taking longer than they said, it's costing more than they said, it's more complicated than they said, and it's just all confusion. As for the Labour Party, well, they're letting their own voters down uh, because they're backing it. Now, it's not about scoring points. It's about what is best for the country. And they both seem to have lost sight of that. They're both involved in internal war. And Now, for you and I, For our future, for our family's future, our friends, for our jobs, our mortgages, the cost of food, the medicines that we'll have access to, and for a lot of people, remember, that's life-threatening. For all of that, what we need is an end to the chaos and a proper look at exactly what this is going to mean. We're not getting that from this government. Um, I mean, you say we can't capitalise. We don't want to capitalise on anything. We want the best thing for the country. What we want is to demand that we get a better deal and that our young people get the best opportunities. And that's not going to happen unless we sort out this mess. That's probably one of the best answers I've heard to that particular point in in the entire (laughs) debate. Um, So so thank you for that. (laughs) It's lovely to hear a bit of rational thought sometimes. Uh, how likely do you think we are to arrive at a no-deal scenario? Oh, that thought terrifies me. Um, that is unthinkable. And the fact that we've got leading politicians in this country saying it's likely frightens the life out of me. I could put it more rudely, but I won't. It frightens well, the life out of me. Feel free to. Because, I don't censor anyone. I mean, they really have the responsibility to deliver something that's good for the British people and not just what's good for them in terms of their, you know, leadership campaign for the Conservative Party or, you know, their party's positioning for the next general election. This should be about um, what is best for the country. No deal. Having a no deal is unimaginable. I mean, can you imagine what it's going to be like for us all if that happens? Come April next year, if we have no deal... We go into World Trade um, Organization terms. We won't know if our airplanes will be able to take off and land in Europe. We don't know if the Eurostar will be able to go to Paris. We don't know if our lorries will be able to take food across the, the channel. We don't know if we'll be able to get food. And medicines, when you get to the stage where the government's admitting that it's stockpiling vital medicines, there's something wrong. You know, this is not, this shouldn't, this is like World War Two, and it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't. There's no need for it in the first place. 
And certainly to think that the government have allowed it to get to this stage is incomprehensible. Yeah, it's it's really utterly terrifying. <laughs> um, the the fact that the the talk of of World Trade Organization rules being completely normal and fine and what everyone else does is probably the scariest part for me. Um, the fact that so the the largest company that I or the largest country sorry that I can find that trades exclusively on World Tra- Trade Organization rules is uh, Mauritania that has um, a GDP that is not 0.2% the size of the UK and somewhere between 1 and 17% of the population still live in slavery. <laughs> that's wow. the biggest company or that's the biggest country sorry that I can find that um that trades wow. on. Yeah. So it's it's really terrifying to seeing these huge like institutions like the IEA and Adam Smith um, all just pro- like pushing this idea that it'll be fine, you know, we're all going to be okay. <laughs> well, say that I I haven't actually. That's news to me because the organisations I'm hearing are saying no, we won't be fine. Well, I would urge you um, to look I'm... at a report by by D Smog UK. Um, that shows well, the web of um, sort of anti-climate change think tanks that are being funded by wealthy US donors who are offering cash for access to um, UK government ministers like Steve Baker, Liam Fox, Michael Gove. Uh, it's a really great piece of reporting um, and it really gives you a good yeah, idea of the people but, pushing the hard Brexit yeah, narrative. Th- yeah, but those are people pushing hard Brexit. I'm not talking about people pushing hard Brexit. What I'm saying is I haven't heard anybody who doesn't have, if you like, an axe to grind, um, who is, you know, a reputable body saying, yeah, it's a great idea. All the, all, all the people that I talk to, all the organisations, um, businesses who aren't part of the campaign but who are dependent on it, say, this is madness. How can we, you know, they're doing their best to deal with the uncertainty of not knowing exactly what's going to happen. But all the big organizations in, in this country who stand to be affected by it, um, you'll find that they consistently say, this is this is not going to work. The universities are crying out for something to do. I was at my daughter's graduation the day Boris Johnson resigned. It's quite funny in a way. It was ironic and sad, but... Um, I got a text message while I was there um, to say, we think Boris Johnson's about to resign. It will be confirmed shortly. Then I got a text message to say, confirmed, Boris Johnson has resigned. At that point, the founder or, and creator of the Erasmus scheme was receiving an honorary doctorate from Edinburgh University. And he was talking about his vision um, what had prompted the Erasmus scheme, how it had worked, about all the people who'd been involved, the things that had come out of it, the international cooperation, the people who'd come, you know, to, to this country to study and had brought their culture here and then taken the ideas from this country back there. He talked about the million Erasmus babies that have been born um, and about the sort of international cooperation that it engenders when an entire generation of people in influential positions or working in companies across Europe have learned from one another and have worked together. And when he was finished, he got a huge round of applause from the students. And when I looked at that student body gathered for the graduation, it was an amazingly diverse group. And the names going up, there were names from all over Europe 
French names, German names, Italian names, students who come here because Edinburgh has the country's biggest percentage of Erasmus students. And the, the principal stood up and, you know, thanked them, thanked them for his speech and then said, and I want to make a promise that Edinburgh University will continue to look to Europe and will continue regard, in regarding itself as European, regardless of the, of the obstacles that politicians are putting in our way. I heard that and I thought, you know what? That's exactly what this is about. These young people, their opportunities are being narrowed. The, not just their educational opportunities, their employment opportunities, their opportunities for personal growth and for understanding, for cultural interaction between us and the rest of Europe. It's been narrowed by Brexit. We are backing ourselves into a narrow little nationalist corner where the only thing we know about and the only thing we'll understand is British. And I don't think that's what the majority of people in this country, regardless of how we voted, that's what they want. That's why it's important that they see the final deal, that they get a chance to say, actually, no, that's not what I wanted. I maybe wanted out of the political institutions, but I don't want to leave the cultural institutions. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave the the economic institutions, but I didn't want to leave the, the political ones. Or do you know what? Leaving the political institutions is not worth the price of leaving the economic ones. Or maybe they wanted to leave the economic ones, but not the political ones, and see the opposite and think this deal, whatever it is, whenever we find out about it, is not good for me, for my family, for the future, for all our jobs and all our standard and cost of living. That's why it's important that we get a look at this. Now, if it's no deal, that's even worse. But I, this is not about now. This is not about, I, I hope, for, for any politician, this should not be about votes. It should not be about positioning for a general election or even worse, positioning for a leadership election. It should be about what is best for the country. And I think that's why, if you like, we never moved from that position because a fundamental part of being a liberal is being an internationalist and wanting the best interaction to get the best for this country from being part of that wider world. And that's what we see under threat and why you will not find us backing down or moving away from that position that is what is best for this country and that's what's important well as long as someone is looking out for our best interests uh, i would much prefer it was was every party but it's it's nice to hear oh that, yeah that there's at least someone attempting to look out because i think that's probably the most frustrating part of the whole thing is the fact that really it doesn't feel like anyone's going well you know if if it does tr- crash the economy what are we going to do like, like i haven't yeah. heard anyone say yeah. that and that's probably like yeah well um what you'll hear or you will have heard tom Brake, um the liberal democrat spokesperson on brexit say what you'll have heard vince cable say what you'll have heard me say is that this is not what is best for us and you know if it crashes the economy, what are we going to do? And that's where you get back into the fact that the government hasn't a clue what it's doing, apparently. They're making a total mess of it. Um, but, you know, it's time that they were the ones who originally said that this had to be the people's decision. You know that? They said that's why they went to the referendum. This had to be up to the people. Well, you know what? Now we're getting to the crunch. 
and the people should have the final say because it's only now that they can see what this deal when we finally get it will mean. And I think we all deserve the chance to say, do you know what, that's not a good deal. That's not what's best. That's not what we wanted. Um, I think we should demand that. And we're leading the fight, as you said, to stop Brexit. And we're demanding that it is those people that get the right, not the politicians. And so far, we've got more than 200,000 supporters. We're speaking with millions of people every day. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of this, we will be the ones who have made a difference. And that <coughs> moving forward, <coughs> the Conservatives are going to have a major problem if they impose this deal, whatever it might be, on the British people without the British people having a chance to say, no, that's not what we wanted. Yeah, well, um, I personally hope we get um, to have a people's vote on the final deal. I feel like that's probably... I'm with you. The reasonable reasonable way to, to deal with things, but um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. No, I, um, well, you know where you can sign the petition? I have, um, and I will Excellent. put it in the description um, of this interview when we put it up online. So if anyone's Excellent. listening, they can, they can sign it if they haven't already. Now, there's been a lot of talk, mainly by the press, um, and yeah. occasionally by, by Tony Blair, um, about the need for a, a new centrist third party in the UK to oppose Brexit. And there was me thinking we already had one of them. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like, where, where is this talk coming from? Like, why do you think it's getting any traction at all, given that that's literally the mantra of the Liberal Democrats? <laughs> It's getting traction because people are fed up with the positions of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, mm-hmm. frankly. That's why it's getting traction. Um, how much traction it's getting amongst the chattering classes? Yeah. I mean, politicians um, and, you know, the press and, oh, you know, we need... Well, we've got a third party. We've got a centrist party. But we've got a party that's committed to the EU and it's called the Liberal Democrats. Um, if you look back to the 80s, we discovered then how difficult it is in this country to establish a third party. The SDP, that's what their name was. Um, they couldn't do it, not a third party, a new party. They couldn't do it. Um, we've been around for well, a couple of hundred years, so we are established as a national party. Um, but the SDP couldn't do it. UKIP. UKIP was a single-issue campaign, and they tried their very best for more than a decade to get in to Westminster. And they weren't successful. The Greens have only got one MP after all the time and effort, money, support that they've had. So talking about setting up another party, um, you know, it's a wee bit pie in the sky. How How is it going to happen? How are they going to break through? We are the centre party. We are the pro-European party. We are here. You see... I remember having having a conversation in my my politics class many years ago about mm-hmm. how recessions and economic sort of downturns tend to create or bump up an extra sort of third option, especially in in yeah. two party or two party dominated systems. Yeah, and I find it interesting that the two thousand eight crash, given that it was probably the biggest one we'd had in in twenty or thirty years, ended up being the one that didn't actually create that, that a new party and, and 
Well, unless you unless you, you count the rise of UKIP, which you'd be you'd be totally. Um, if you look uh, at two thousand and eight and the crash, remember it was a worldwide crash. Mm. You did get Macron in France, and you did get Justin Trudeau. Yeah, in Canada, and um, unfortunately, you also got Donald Trump in America, all rising out of this recession. What you got in this country um, was a desire, in the same way that they had the, a desire for change, different sorts of change, uh, very different sorts of change in America from the desire in Canada and France. But you also got a desire for some sort of change in this country, which we saw through the referendum. We saw, I mean, that, if you like, justifies what you're saying. We saw it through the referendum, but now what we're seeing is, if you like, the backlash to that, which is, well, actually, no, that's not the change that we wanted because that's not going to solve our economic problems. It's going to make it worse. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not saying that the argument that you had at university was wrong. I'm just saying that it's not quite as simple as you get a new political party. Oh, um, it was it was in uh, my my uh, GCSE politics class, so it wasn't ah, quite right. as sophisticated so, as a you know, university discussion. So, you, you, I mean, you can look at um, times when there's been like the the recession, you can look at the crash in the 20s. Um, You never really get a new, uh, in America, for example, you don't get new parties. Mm. But what you did get this time was Trump, who's a completely new and very strange and dangerous phenomenon, um, populist politicians. In in this country, in the 20s, you saw the the rise of the Labour Party. Um, Now here we are again. Will we see change? Actually, you know what? I think we haven't seen it yet. I think what we've seen with the rise of things like the, the popularity of the People's Vote campaign, what we're seeing now in sort of backlash to the extreme Brexiteers is a movement towards the centre. That's why you're getting this, this talk. It's because um, the press and politicians are very aware that people are moving towards the centre, that public opinion is moving towards the centre, and that neither the Conservatives nor the Labour Party fill that role. But we do. Well, hopefully um, we'll at some point in the future see some sort of electoral reform that will give the, the Liberal Democrats and any other third parties um, more Well, you're preaching to the choir there. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that there's any chance of seeing seeing that discussed again in the next 10 years after the, the AV referendum sort of didn't quite well, the go AV over? referendum... The AV referendum uh, wasn't it was a particular sort of PR, but you've already got PR in Scotland. Um, we have it in Northern election. Ireland as well. Yeah, you've got it in Northern Ireland and Wales as well. You've got you've got change. You've got um, electoral reform. Um, England is holding out, and Westminster is holding out. But do you know what? Um, all of it depends on what happens next. After we get, we either get out of this Brexit mess by stopping it or we find ourselves the other side of it and trying to cope with it, that will determine where we go next. And if we get electoral change, it will be because people um, have had the, the opportunity um, and see that um, two-party politics got them into this mess um, and that having an opposition that was ineffective in the Labour Party um, really underlines the need for a stronger third party, it's, uh, an opposition which is not just dependent on one 
um, party leadership. And I think we'll see that more and more. And you may well get electoral reform. And you know what? It may well that electoral reform will probably depend on the strength of the Liberal Democrats because we're the ones who fought for it before. We're the ones who fought for it for decades and we will continue to fight for it. Yeah, I think the referendum was unfairly sunk by David Cameron, but that's yeah, his reasoning. Oh, yeah, yeah, his yeah. reasoning is probably that's... fairly obvious. I would like to yeah. make the point as well that that PR, given like Northern Ireland has uh, proportional representation by single transferable uh-huh. vote, which is arguably one of the most representatives, uh, most yep. representative electoral systems. We have systems. that in local government in um, Scotland. We uh, we don't have a government right now, so it doesn't always lead to um, better governance. Uh, but well, I think Northern Ireland. I I, I think. We all need to accept, particularly at the moment, with the the difficulties of the Northern Irish border that the European uh, negotiations are causing mm. um, and the scale of that problem. I think we all need to accept that you can't just put Northern Ireland into a pigeonhole. A pigeonhole does not exist for Northern Ireland. You cannot look at Northern Ireland and say, well... The government has collapsed, therefore it's PR's fault. There are other <laughs> issues in Northern Ireland. No, I'm well aware. You cannot aware. blame PR. Um, we have, in Scotland, we have single transferable votes on the local authorities. And we have the De Hunt system, which is the top-up list at the Scottish Parliament. So we've got two different systems there. And they both work perfectly well. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we've become used to that as a reasonable way of moving forward. We've seen movement in you know who controls power we've seen um we've seen um sort of consensus being necessary to to move forward the the SNP had to do it in 2007 to 2011 they're doing they're having to do it again with much less success um the labor party had to build consensus with us and the liberal democrats in the first two parliaments and um, and that worked and you find that with a proportional representation system, regardless of what you know the you know the great defenders of you know first past the post might say, and once you get in to um, uh, a more representative PR system, they work together. And to me, that's what politicians should be doing. They should have to sit round the table and decide um, on the best way forward. Um, the fact that one government's in power, one party's in power for 20 years, as we've had in this country recently, hmm. and every budget is decided by that party, and every budget is decided along their political, ideological lines. Is that fair? Is that representative of everybody in the country? No, not really, when they don't necessarily have a massive majority or massive support. So the fact that they have to sit down with the other parties and say, look, um, can we build consensus here can we build something that everybody agrees with then i think that's a good thing and i think the closer we get to that in the uk the better off we'll all be and you know what we probably wouldn't be in this brexit mess because um david cameron on his own um and the conservative party would not have been able to say do you know what we'll have a referendum Mm -hmm. they would have had to have built a consensus with the other parties on exactly what was going to happen instead of where we are now when we're just in chaos. I think it's something that's really interesting. I'd be interested in your thoughts actually um, on this is that is the this how salient the sort of coalition of chaos thing continues to be at every election for the Conservative Party to, to sort of slam 
Labour or just like any idea of there being a non-majority party in, in Westminster and, and this sort of like strong and stable government cliche that David Cameron pushed and then Theresa May pushed to varying degrees of success. Um, what do you think it is about about this idea of a coalition that that British people or, or maybe even more specifically English people have such an aversion to? I don't think it's anything to do with um, English people or any British people having an aversion to it. I think it's, you know, it's just the system that we've had for several hundred years. And it takes a lot for people to um, change that. And also, you know, it's the old turkey voting for Christmas thing. Why would the, you know, why would the Conservative Party um, introduce a system which makes it more difficult for them to have power. Why would the Labour Party support it? Um, because at the moment they see a situation where with first past the post they can have a majority. Um, and so they don't, you know, why they don't really want to give that up. So it's up to the rest of us who think that perhaps it's not representative of people to try and persuade them and to fight for it. I remember years ago, my mother and father were both Conservatives, and they lived in a part of the country in Scotland that always voted Labour, without fail, it voted Labour, massive majorities. And they did not feel that they were represented necessarily by the system. But once the um, parliament was set up and we had proportional representation, my mother was well aware that she could go and she had two votes and that for one of those votes, she could vote for regional representation which would ensure that she had a regional MP who reflected her views, that she would be represented. And that's the difference. It's when people are given the opportunity to ensure that their views are represented, that they, they will have that. That's what people want. People don't necessarily want, you know, the biggest... It's like, you know, the, you know, the biggest kid in the playground having the biggest stick and having all to say. No. They want more views to be represented. They want everybody's views to be represented. And, you know, for, you know, government, business, education, all to have voices speaking out with all views and all views represented in a fair proportionate way. Well, that's that's democracy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so just um, I'm sure you're you're busy. So I'll uh, just I've actually got another meeting that I'm getting waved at here that I've got to hurry up and get to. That's all right. Well, so do, do you have time for have one more go. question, or do you have to? Yeah, share? no, uh, just one more. Okay, well, you can give a short answer on this. Is is uh, is devolution legitimately being challenged by the Brexit process, or will things all go back to normal once you know the the transition period? Is would devolution be over? being challenged? Yes. How do you mean? Um, there's been sort of the pullback of some powers that would be transferred directly to Holyrood. Oh, in, uh, the yeah, cases look, of the... that is just SMT nonsense. <laughs> there is no power grab. These powers were never at the Scottish Parliament. They were at Brussels. There's no power grab. There's no constitutional crisis. There's no rolling back of devolution. It just suits the SMP agenda to try and paint it that way so that, you know, they can try and, you know, build support for the, for another independence referendum. But that's not the case. Um, what the debate is about is the frameworks within which those powers sit. Now, why on earth 
you have to ask yourself about the SNP. Do they want, they want, incidentally, the SNP don't want Brexit either. So the SNP want the powers to stay at Brussels. <laughs> so what is like the problem? <laughs> they don't want, they actually want the powers to stay in Brussels. So, what, you know, what is their argument? That they take the, they have the powers from London and then they become independent and they give the powers to Brussels? <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. Also, if they are so keen to stop um, this, what they term a power grab, and frankly isn't, why aren't they backing a people's vote? Mm. Why is it all, well, you know, I'll tell you why. It's because everything the SNP do, absolutely everything, and we have this from some of their MSPs, I've said it publicly, mm. everything they do is about independence. Everything is about building that narrative grievance against the United Kingdom. That's what this is about. There's no threat to devolution, except from the SNP. <laughs> right, well, that's a lovely note to leave it on, um, Christine. Thank you very okay, much okay. For, for chatting to me. I had a lot of fun. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify. Later this week, we're going to have an interview with Barney Scholes, who's the press officer at the People's Vote campaign. So if you're interested in the campaign to have a second vote on the Brexit deal, then be sure to tune in for that. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>